podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Ayo, welcome back to the podcast, Boss Man. Yes, sir. Oh, wow. We got you back on the good mic. <laughs> Thanks for having me once again. Appreciate that. <laughs> hey, happy holidays. This is the time of year, of course. Things in business land slow down and by design. I mean, this year we have an official office holiday for almost the span of two weeks. I'm looking forward to it. They slow down. But yet in America, people act like they're still working. <laughs> it's like, just take the vacation. No one's doing anything serious right now. Get out of here. Get out of here. Have some fun. But yeah, come back and listen to the pod for some inspiration. We don't expect that TMBA listeners have listened to every episode in 2018. So we want to take the time to do some holiday retrospectives. And in this particular epi, and we want to talk about some moments in 2018 that surprised or delighted us or reaffirmed important themes for us here at the pod. So the first one is when you finally meet somebody that you admire and they turn out to be cool, amazing, relatable people. You know, it can be the case, Ian, that sometimes when you admire somebody from afar, you're admiring this idealized version of themselves. And when you meet them, it can be disappointing. Like sometimes they could just be jerks. Most every time. Most every time for me. And in one instance this year, our guest far exceeded our expectations in terms of how they would treat us and our audience when we did get a chance to speak with them. My name is Seth Godin. You put yourself out there in all these ways, and, and we talk a lot about the lizard brain and getting criticized. Are there critiques that you receive that bother you, maybe because you feel they're legitimate in some ways? Criticism is an interesting project for someone who wants to do better work. Because if you can find the right criticism and make yourself truly open to it, you can get smart really, really fast. But most of the time, the critic has an agenda that goes beyond making you better at your craft. And understanding the critic's agenda is essential because they don't see what you see. They don't want what you want. They don't believe what you believe. And if you can get past those three things, maybe there's something to be learned there. But often we just use it as a crutch to hide. You know, I haven't read my Amazon reviews now in six years. And the day I stopped reading them was a good day. And Yes, there's tons of feedback that I've treasured, but often we use it as a way to hide. Seth, you went to uh, Stanford Business School. It's true. What do you think of people who are making that decision nowadays? I've written about this a little bit, and I feel very strongly. If you want to go to work for one of a few industries that demand an MBA from a famous college, and pay a lot. It's a no-brainer. Put up the $250,000 in cash and opportunity costs it's going to cost you. Go to Harvard, Stanford, or Kellogg, and then go make a million dollars a year. 
that's a fine, clear, well-lit path. But to go to a not famous business school, to go into debt, to learn stuff that you could learn in a quarter of the time for less than a quarter of the money, you're clearly not going for the education. You're either going for the piece of paper or for the network. And the piece of paper is worth less than ever before if it's not a famous business school. So I'm in favor of people constantly sharpening their saw, constantly getting smarter about this, usually by doing the work, not by sitting in a classroom. You mentioned real quick that you have a small team around Alt-MBA. Part of what I would assume is difficult for you is being a creative, but then also running an organization. How do you kind of balance those two things? You know, when I was a book packager, the first bunch of years I was a failure, but then I started to get traction. And I said to my three best clients, each of them, I said, if you would just agree to publish all my work, I'll do it for you for a quarter of the price. Don't wait for me to make something up and then bring it to you and then sell it to you and then charge you as much as I can. Let me just make stuff and you just publish stuff. And no one has ever wanted to take me up on that deal because it turns out that good ideas are scarce, but really scarce are people who will run projects. Really scarce is the impresario who says, I'll handle it. And there's a post on my blog that I posted on my birthday a few years ago called 30 Years of Projects. And it's 30 years of projects. And I left out a lot of them. But I realize that's really my contribution is that I'm shipping stuff on a regular basis. That if I hadn't written Lynchpin, then people could have just read The War of Art instead. And some of my ideas are replaceable. Some I was first, but they were going to get done anyway. The ability to show up and run the project, it's not how I want to spend my day because I like sitting and thinking and inventing, but I do spend my day doing that because I care about the work. Ian, Mr. Godin, obviously famous in internet marketing land, one of the easiest interviews to set up ever. You know, the people who've actually earned prima donna status are sometimes they got there maybe because they weren't prima donnas. And then on the other range of the spectrum, sometimes you're talking to people who they're just getting started out and they're a total pain in the butt. It is funny. I mean, in the context of Seth Godin, a friend of a friend had told me that they had met him at this conference and he had like security around him. And I'm just thinking like, oh gosh, you know, <laughs> how is this going to go? And then it went amazing and he turned out to not be that dude. So if Seth Godin would have had like a list of demands and been like, I want you to show up to this interview with a bowl full of blue M&Ms and whatever, I would have been like, yes, sir, Seth Godin, I will do whatever you <laughs> We would have done it. I like blue M&Ms anyways. Thanks to Seth for sharing his ideas on this show. An encouragement to the rest of you, you know, I would have sworn he would have said no when we reached out to him. You never know what you're going to get when you go out there and go for it. And I'm glad we, glad we reached out to Seth and that he came on the show. So Ian, one thing that's been reaffirmed on this podcast this year is show, don't tell. Show us what you're doing. We don't want to hear your theories or think about what you think you think you're doing. And this was really exemplified for me in TMBA 425, Meet the Deal Master, is when you brought one of your mentors onto the show, Corey Ruth. What was it like interviewing your mentor for the podcast? It was a lot of fun. It was not so dissimilar to an episode that you recently did and talked about where 
you're good friends with somebody, you know somebody really well, and then you have to sit down and interview them. So in that respect, it was a bit of a challenge. But I actually learned a lot from the interview because, you know, Corey and I, like, we go out for fun and do deals and, and have a good time, you know. But we do distill the deals. We, we will sit down and, and talk about them, but not in the type of detail that we talked about on the podcast. So for me, I actually like sat down, listened to the podcast after we had recorded it, and I learned a lot. Yeah, me too. I genuinely thought this was really entertaining and thought-provoking. It all started with your obsession with buying and selling cars, Ian, but really what Corey did in this episode was show everyone how they can make deals and become an entrepreneur on their own terms. want to be able to wake up tomorrow and say I'm going to Greece on Friday. We literally just did that yesterday. We booked a trip to Greece and we were able to just do that on a whim. That's what I want to share with people is how to take control of your life through creating extra income sources. Keep your full-time job. Experiment with buying and selling anything that you understand and that you're good at. I don't care what it is. I know a woman that makes all her extra money buying and selling chairs. Chairs. I would have never believed it. Everybody knows, has knowledge about something that's valuable. The internet is the wild, wild west. You can buy and sell anything. So if you pursue that, it's so much easier concept for me than the idea of I'm going to accumulate wealth over the next 45 years until I reach some magic number at which I can finally retire and do what I want to do while I'm out of my prime and old, too old to even enjoy it. Whoever came up with that strategy was a business owner not an employee. Let me buy your prime of your life and then you can have it back when you can't utilize it. And then you can leave your money to your children. No, thank you. And what I like about your method and how you live your life is that you really can buy and sell anything. But what you do need to do is you need to be creative. You need to understand people. You need to relate to people. And you also need to be willing to be uncomfortable. And I think that those are all things that you excel at my buying and selling started by accident because I was a car enthusiast. So I would pursue deals for things that I wanted. And just like you, I would just try to get the best deal possible. I've always been fascinated by what I like to call the art of the deal. So I would always try to see what someone's bottom dollar was, regardless of what the value of the machine was that I was trying to pursue. It actually became a thing for me when I became unemployed unexpectedly. And I was just surfing Craigslist. And I think I was actually searching for trades because I had just purchased a Toyota 4Runner for $1,700. And I found this Silver Shadow. And when I realized that they were interested in trades, I called the person and I spoke to her. And she was looking for an SUV. She was already asking below retail for the Rolls Royce. I think she was asking $8,000. So I presented the 4Runner as a possible trade opportunity. I went to Houston to go see this Rolls Royce. I brought a trailer and I brought the forerunner. I also brought a pocket full of cash, anticipating that I would have to add at least three or four thousand dollars on top of the forerunner to make it a fair trade. And we got to know each other, we built a rapport, and she was really just trying to find a way to haul her dogs to the park and back. And the forerunner was perfect for that. So I told her I love the Rolls Royce, I'd love to have it. What's the trade look like to you? And I just put the ball in her court and she said, I want to trade even. Trade even, she's asking $8,000 for a Rolls Royce and you have $1,700 in this little SUV, this little Toyota SUV. And she says, I want to do an even trade. Yeah. And I was taken aback by that. But, you know, me being the 
deal monger that I am, I just happily accepted and thanked her profusely. And we did the swap. And I brought that Rolls Royce home with intention of just selling it because it was just a fun toy. I just, I drove it around for a while while I had it up for sale on Craigslist. And I sold it for $12,000. I also did a Maserati deal that was real similar. It was like a really low cost of entry point where I sold it for good money. And I had another deal. I don't remember what it was, but there was three car deals within 30 days. And those all happened in the same month that I was laid off. I cleared $14,000 that month just with buying and selling cars. Now I had a small kitty to buy and sell from. So I began actually pursuing deals intentionally for the first time ever, where I started surfing for just anything below retail. Now, I want to go back a little bit to this Rolls Royce deal. And I think people hear this and they're like, wait a second, you showed up with a $1,700 SUV. This lady had what she thought was a Rolls Royce that was worth 8000 turned out to be worth 12000 when you sold it. And she wanted to do an even trade. I think people are probably really confused how you got that done. How did you con her into trading you for this vehicle? One of the things that you started to explain, and that's really important during this process, is rapport. You said you built a rapport with her. I realized early on that I've never done a favor for someone I didn't really like. You typically do nice things for people that you want to help because you like them as a person or you love them or their family or what have you. In the context of the deal, if the person doesn't enjoy your company, then they're going to be in a hurry to get rid of you. And they're likely not to give you their bottom dollar. Whenever I approach a deal, most people have already considered what their bottom dollar is. There's no end to the reasons why people sell things. So it's your job as the buyer, you know, first to build the rapport, but then to determine what their motivating factors are for selling. And in the case of this woman with the Rolls Royce, her motivation was not money. She lived on a nice property. She was a business owner. She was living below her means. This was just a fun car. It was an extra car, and it no longer served her. She didn't care about it anymore. We built a rapport because we were birds of a feather. We were both business owners, entrepreneur personalities. So she wanted to help me. I was young. I was full of life and exciting, and that rubbed off on her, and she thought it was great fun, and she wanted me to have the Rolls Royce, and she wanted me to go drive around downtown Austin with all my friends and enjoy it like she did you know, 10 years ago. And we've all done it as sellers, whether it's a friend or somebody that we just connected with whenever they arrived. One of the ways I picked up on this concept is that I once didn't sell a BMW to someone because I didn't like their approach. It was a husband and wife team. It was a 1996 BMW E36. I was selling it for below retail. I was just trying to unload it. I had driven it quite a while and I'd gotten my money out of it. So I wasn't really trying to make any money on it. I was selling it for 7000 And they showed up and immediately began to pick the car apart. And this is a car that I'd actually driven for three or four years that I actually liked. So immediately they rubbed me the wrong way because they're nitpicking the car like you would do with a dealer who doesn't have an emotional attachment to the car. You know, in the case of that BMW deal, I didn't accept an offer that was more than what I was willing to accept for the car. They offered 6200 I was going to take 5500 And because I didn't like them, I told them to take a hike. Their approach was all wrong for my personality at the time, and I, I didn't want to help them. I wanted them to suffer and go try to buy 10 more cars. Getting back to this lady and building rapport with her, one of the things that I find really interesting about your approach is, number one, you're super charismatic. Number two, you're super genuine. I mean, it is your intention to drive around in that car with your friends at downtown Austin, but it is also your intention to sell that car three weeks later. 
How do you balance that? The longer I do it, the more I pursue complete authenticity. Because I'm finding, especially in a town like Austin, where there's so many hippies and so many people that are spiritually driven or values-driven people, I think it's really important that you're being sincere and you're being authentic because they pick up on it. The more deals I do, the more honest I am about what my intentions are, the more that it rewards me. Show, don't tell. That's what made this episode so memorable for me. Corey didn't tell us how we can make money through his grand theory or five-part video course, he, he showed us approach by drawing from actual examples. In his experience, great job, boss man. It's all about rubber meets the road, quite literally, with Corey in terms of these deals. So it's great to have a five-part video course, and it's great to have drawings and arrows and all this stuff, but like, <laughs> Corey only gets paid if he buys and sells. All right, everybody, for Christmas, I bought myself an ad spot on the podcast. I want you guys to go check out dynamitejobs.co if you haven't been there lately. I remember back when I used to have a sourcing manager that I worked with in China, and I still remember this email subject line he sent me one year. It was so surprising. The subject line was just this, new year, new job. And when I opened that email, it turned out that he wanted to leave the company he was working for and come work for me. And that was an enormous opportunity for me. So if you're looking for a new job in the new year, an enormous opportunity that can change your lifestyle, over at dynamitejobs.co, we only list jobs from legit companies that are providing jobs with a great deal of schedule and location freedom. Remote jobs means you don't have to go to an office, no more commute, and work for legit, interesting companies. So if you want a new job in the new year, Go check out dynamitejobs.co. So the number three thing that has us surprised, delighted, or reaffirmed things for us for this year on this podcast is that being open and authentic is the new cool. Does this mean like wearing pink and being proud about it or like, <laughs> what do you mean? Sometimes I find when people do recorded interviews in the podcast sphere. They show up with the facade. They show up with the pitch, with the angle. You know, this one of the things that's toughest about hosting a podcast in this space is people are so motivated to bring you their agenda. And to me, agenda is not as interesting or as useful as really understanding where people are coming from. And that's what we're trying to get to the bottom of. We're trying to meet cool people that are on interesting journeys. And you're not going to get in touch with that by hearing people's angles or pitches all the time, or it's just not that interesting to me. And that's why one of my favorite interviews of the year was with Alan Walton, the founder of Spy Guy, who came on the show and just generously shared his story in a refreshingly frank way. You know, after high school, I was just a complete loser for like a few years, and I didn't do anything at all. And I had no plans of being an entrepreneur. You describe yourself as a loser. What, what do you mean by that? There's this game when I graduated high school, and it's called World of Warcraft. And basically, it's a MMORPG, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. There were like 20 million people that played it at the time. And it's basically like Lord of the Rings or something like that, where you just create a character and you go on quests and like do stupid stuff with like 40 other people for like 12 hours a day. 
I was taking college classes at like the local community college and stuff. But, you know, if I wasn't doing that, then I'd open up my laptop and be playing a game forever and going to bed at like 3 a.m. And then I'd just wake up and do it all over again. It was really pretty sad. Well, how long did, did this go on for? Four years, five years, something like that. I've met some people who've done this and it does seem to be incredibly addictive and engaging. Yeah. There's a lot of different reasons why. Like what? Well, in high school, I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. I was kind of a loner and I had really bad grades. I graduated like 430 out of like 500 kids. And when that game came around after high school, suddenly there were like a ton of people that were just like me. And I could log in and everybody's excited that I'm on and we can like go and do stuff. There's like a structure and there's like a hierarchy and like you're given responsibilities and tasks and there's like problem solving and stuff. It's very engaging and there's a lot of teamwork involved. Why hang out in the real world where you don't have any friends and, you know, are just overweight and eating a ton of food and stuff like that. Nobody wants to be around you when you could like log online and everybody else is like an exact replica of you. When you were playing the Warcraft, when did you start to pump the brakes on that and be like, whoa, this might not be the best thing for me? There were a couple turning points. I had actually started working full time at my first job. The video game thing diminished and I realized that it was just, you know, it was taking up so much time and effort. It was like a lifestyle and I didn't really want to do that. I started, I was introduced to like Tim Ferriss at the time. How old are you, by the way? Just to set the stage. Are you living with your parents at this time? I'm living with my parents, yeah. At the time I find out about Tim Ferriss, I'm 23 years old, five years out of high school, and you know how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) So I saw that book, and I'm like, whoa, wait, what is this? (laughs) That was one of the major things, for sure. Like, that really got the ball rolling. What was your first job? For my first job, I was scooping cookie dough and putting it into a a container so it could be frozen and then sold online. So you're a gamer, you're a a yogurt scooper, you're living with your parents. Frozen ice cream, yeah. (laughs) Frozen ice cream scooper. You're reading the four-hour work week. Right. And so I actually ended up getting a job at a place called Micro Center, which is kind of like a Best Buy And I was just a cashier there. I really wanted to be selling Apple computers because they had an Apple section. I actually thought that that was why I was hired. But no, they just stuck me in the cashier. And so I had to do that for like a couple of months. And I kind of used that as like a step stone to getting a job at a surveillance company that was here in Dallas. So you're working at the surveillance company. How's that going? It kind of sucked. Basically, there's been this spy shop that has been in Dallas like since I was a kid. And I always wanted to go in, but it was really scary looking. So I never went in. But I'd eat next door at the Pancake House that was there all the time. And they had a help wanted sign out front. And my mom made me apply for it. (laughs) And so I applied for it. And I never heard back. And then I actually, for some reason, something made me actually go inside and ask about the application. And I guess somebody found that as a good quality and a future employee. And so I had an interview there and I ended up getting the job. They called it a sales floater. So basically they had four different locations and each location had its own store manager. There's one day a week where the manager would get a day off and I'd have to fill in for them. 
And when I wasn't doing that, I'd be like sweeping floors and doing inventory and things like that. And actually kind of sucked because like on the second day, my manager who had no role in hiring me and like hated me, she like made me cry because I went next door to get a hamburger and bring it back to the office to eat real quick. And she said I wasn't taking the job seriously enough and just like berated me. And I like had never had anything like that happen. So at this moment, what do you think in your future looks like? I don't know, man. I was really just coasting. What started the fire? I found out how much money one of the sales guys at the company was making. At the time, there were four stores just in the North Texas area. And the biggest store, the guy that ran it, was making a ton of money in commissions because he had all these huge clients. And I was like, oh my gosh, I would love that much money. This sounds great. And so I actually started reading books on sales, I guess, poking around on YouTube, seeing, you know, what I could learn about how to talk to customers face to face and like close sales and move product. So I, you know, just started learning as much as I could from the other guys. I would watch them and how they talk to customers and address customers issues and concerns. And I found it like a game almost like it got really interesting once I found out how to convince somebody to purchase something and not feel sleazy about it because like I honestly knew that the product would like solve their problem and that they would be really happy. I still talk to customers to this day just to, you know, find out if anything's changed, what their issues are. And it's a lot of fun. What's your favorite part about selling? I really like solving the problems. To go back to that whole loner thing, like I was just very socially awkward, but when I was in the store, I didn't know any of these people and they didn't know me. You know, I didn't necessarily have to like be myself, I guess you could say. Like I could be whoever I wanted in that moment so that the customer would see that I know what I'm talking about and that I'm confident in the product. Whereas normally in real life, I'm not really all that confident or anything like that. Personally, really dug Alan's story, turning his life around, identifying the things that were challenging him, sharing with others, honestly about those and working on them. That's what being an entrepreneur is all about. And Alan's also recently shared his story on the Tim Ferriss podcast. We'll link up to that as well. Alan's just, he's good at this stuff. Get him on the mic, man. Very fascinating, refreshing, no BS guy to talk to. Alan is who he is. Interesting story from 2018 for me, Dan, is I was asked to be on a podcast and you know I wouldn't say this is the biggest podcast in the world but it's a it's a decently sized podcast. So, you know, kind of talked a little bit before I came on the show to figure out what all we were going to talk about. And you know, during the show, I was just in like one of these moods where I was being like very exploratory, so I was like, "Well, I don't know, man. Like, you know, I tried this and but I definitely wasn't coming off as an expert, you know." And yeah, that show never made it to the internet. <laughs> and if you go back and listen to all the people that this person had on their show, it's like everyone comes across as an authority. Everybody comes across as being an expert. And that's just not me, like in any part of my life. Like I don't act that way. So it is curious, these podcasts that everybody knows so much, number one. And then number two, like, are people really walking around life knowing so much too? Like, (laughs) cause I'm certainly not. We have not discussed this. I'm glad you brought that up. So I actually feel the percentage of times that I'm interviewed for a podcast that it doesn't go live, I suspect for me is very high relative to the average person because I'm the same way as you. Like, 
I don't have an agenda when I go on most podcast interviews. And because of that, I've noticed this in, in the interviews themselves is they fall apart because the interviewer isn't actually curious about me or my story. And I don't have an agenda to pitch them. And so it kind of screws up the process. And what ends up happening is like I start going on vamps, I start exploring ideas, and I start interviewing them. <laughs> and it never makes it to air because, of course, they don't want to air something where like someone's asking them tough questions. No, absolutely not. And God forbid you have a conversation as two humans, you know? <laughs> it's like I'm here to make sure that everybody understands what an expert you are. So then I look like an expert for having so many experts on this show. Thank you very much, expert here. Recently, I was interviewed by John Lee Dumas and Pat Flynn, and it was awesome that they gave me a mouthpiece to share my message, which I was very clear about what my message is. It's like, if you're thinking about selling your business, run these five thought experiments. There's a time and place for everything, Ian. I think our show over the past few years has really evolved into a place where we're trying to get to the core of these stories, connect with people, but I think there's a time and place for everything, if, you know, if that makes sense. I mean, I don't know, kind of a jerk showing up to a show. It's pretty clear what the show is about. And I'm like, hey, man, let's talk about life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The number four thing, Ian, that has surprised, delighted, and reaffirmed things for us in this year's interviews is that it's good to be challenged now and again. And this happened in an interesting way when a listener named Egan Heath disagreed with an analysis we made on a show called the knowledge gap versus the efficiency gap. And briefly, the difference is that, and we're talking mostly about services businesses here, but I think it can apply more generally. A knowledge gap is when you come into an industry where people don't really know the benefit of your service very well. They don't necessarily understand why it's so important, but they understand that they need more customers. And you fill that knowledge gap, and that's more or less how you gain customers. Whereas an efficiency gap, you go into an industry where people are already taking advantage of the types of things that your service provides, and you're just really there to turn up the volume. And this is an ongoing philosophical and really practical discussion we have on the show. And it's cool to have people testing these things in their businesses. Egan's business is helping care homes fill more of their vacant spaces. Our interaction started with an email that he wrote me. Let me just say the knowledge gap in the senior living space is intense. Multiple owners, CEOs, and COOs of multi-million dollar companies in the industry have asked me, what's the difference between a browser and a search engine? One community director told me she only used the internet once, and that was to apply for her job. Seriously. So squeezing more efficiency out of my clients' existing assisted living units would be one thing, but increasing their occupancy by 11.8% made them something on the order of $3.9 million in new revenue, much of which was profit because their fixed costs were already covered by the occupants they already had. The COO learned about SEO the same week she hired my agency. Could they have found someone who would have charged them less to get similar results? Yes, but if they saw that multifold ROI, do they really care? I think for me, it was because I've stumbled into this niche. And again, I'm at, you know, 600, 700 days out of the thousand days on my journey. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe efficiency still is better. But there's such a knowledge gap here. There's so much potential value that I'm convinced that this is a business here. 
when I got this big senior living client, they were 10x what my other clients were, and they were not 10x work. I'm leaning into that knowledge gap and really finding value there, and I think my, my client did too, and I think future clients will as well. When you're dealing with people in their 60s that are about to retire, we can't expect them to bring SEO in-house. I know that I'm in education mode because I'm going to speak at assisted living conferences, and it's pretty new stuff. And I, the seats are not as full as I would like them to be in every session, but the people who are there are pretty intrigued is kind of what I'm finding. And it's not that I want to keep them in the dark. It's not that I don't want them to learn. The reality is, like you said, they're busy. The value in their business comes from somewhere else. Even if they could learn this on a blog post, they're not going to. They don't know what they don't know. That's fascinating. If I insist on continuing to use the term knowledge gap, then it breaks down pretty quickly. Basically, I think that's what you pointed out. What I'm suggesting is that this company is set up to value people in assisted living homes. And essentially, that's what you're selling them. If you go in there and you sell them Facebook ads or whatever, it feels to me like you've solved this issue with your sales approach by positioning. Maybe so, yeah. In this world that I'm working in with these folks in senior living, they're really caregivers. They're there first and foremost to care for the elderly, and they often have nursing backgrounds and medical backgrounds. And this sort of sales language, it's not foreign, but it's a new, a new way of thinking for them. Right. But the thing that's not a new way of thinking for them is that their business succeeds if people are in the buildings. And essentially, that's what you're bringing to the table. And maybe I'm getting fast and loose with my terms here, but what you're bringing to the table in that sense is efficiency. As you're saying, you guys are all set up. Like Everything you do here is about having people in these buildings. That's what you value. That's what everybody is doing. Now I'm coming to the table and I'm bringing people to the buildings. Whereas if you go to them and you say, what you guys need to be doing is something different, which is what I'm doing. Get on the page with this. You guys need to have funnels. You guys need to do these things. That's the mistake that I see people making, essentially. Yeah, it seems like a tricky dichotomy then if any sort of knowledge gap can sort of be squeezed into an efficiency issue if we speak the client's language. To me, it's like if my situation here is not a knowledge gap, I'm having trouble picturing one. I'm not telling them, hey, you should do, you guys should get out of senior living. You should have home care or something like that. It's interesting because most of the ones I talk to seem to be happy at 80 some percent capacity, which is we're making a little profit, not too much. And when you go from 80 to 90 some percent, it's almost all profit. And when you go from 90 some percent to 100 percent and we're on wait list, that's in expansion territory. We're adding units. We're adding new locations. I think the savvy owners get that. A lot of the other folks I'm talking to in the industry are just not thinking that way. You really have to go to the top to get to the business-minded folks there and speak that language. Ian, as someone who dabbles in silly business philosophies and enjoys reading books and exchanging ideas with people, one of the, the best compliments of the year for me was Egan writing to me and saying, hey, man, I, I'm taking your theory seriously, and I think you might be off about something. I love that. It was awesome. It was great to talk to him. He's got skin in the game. He's growing an important business for him and his family and taking these ideas to heart and testing them in the field. And it was really cool to talk to him. In fact, I had such a good time talking to Egan that I'm hoping to get him back on the pod next year to hear what he's up to. And finally, number five thing on our list, 
that has surprised, delighted, or reaffirmed things for us this year is finding your tribe and your people can make life so much more enriching. It's interesting. We were talking about a business idea before this call. Of course, we were talking about a new business idea. Why would we talk about improving our current? We barely got to the podcast, as always. (laughs) And you know, one of my arguments for doing this was, man, this would enrich the relationships in our life. Like this business would allow us to connect more deeply with the types of people we want to connect with. That's just such a core value for me. If I didn't have that in this entrepreneurial journey, I wouldn't still be around. You know, if it was just me and a laptop and spreadsheets, I couldn't have made it through, Ian. Yeah. And that's why we talk about it all the time. You got to get around other people. To call back to something Alan Walton said on the Tim Ferriss podcast, he was underlining the importance of this. And he said, one of the best things about starting a lifestyle business was finding my tribe. It's like I actually found people with similar values. And the same is true for us, you know, that we found people that are friends, that are people worth being around, generally speaking. And I think that's really a powerful part of this this whole thing. Dan, back when we started this podcast, was it 2010? 2009, which means we'll be celebrating our 10-year anniversary next summer. Gosh, when we started this nine years ago, that was exactly the reason is because we were trying to bump into other people that were entrepreneurs that understood what we were doing, but we just couldn't find them. We couldn't even find them in the same city that we lived in. There was like two. Yeah. It wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. So we started this podcast and then here we are today. So it's actually been a decade long mission to connect with our tribe. And I think it's working. And I think, I hope we've created a safe place for other people can connect with each other at our events and on our forums in the DC. And I think uh, we should be really proud of that, buddy. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped about it. I mean, certainly we've reaped the benefits of being able to meet so many cool people. Speaking of cool people, I remember meeting Jen Anderson, who came onto the show to talk about finding her tribe. You know, originally she worked on Wall Street and then was part of the startup crowd in San Francisco. And so it was interesting to hear her journey to find this tribe of bootstrapped lifestyle entrepreneurs. Everybody sounds really good here. Everybody sounds really smart and intelligent. And they are, they are. But then I've been in a couple of startups that are just like so poorly run. And even at this one that I was at, which was a success, I mean, on paper, at least. I mean, we IPO'd at the end of 2014. IPO'd at $15. Stock went up to 25 Guess what it's trading at now? I think $3.65 and a bunch of scandals and mismanagement. And I remember my company was working on a product. I was not involved in this product, but it was the highest priority for the year. And I remember saying to my boss, you guys are spending eight months building this thing and like 80 engineers. I'm like, this is crazy. I was like, we haven't tested this yet. Like we haven't done any like minimum viable product or seeing if there's really a market for this. Like, and he just looked at me and he said, Oh, it'll work <laughs> because we had a fancy strategy team of, you know, X fancy consultants that did an analysis and said it'll work. And now it's two years later and it's not working. <laughs> How did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur so young? I think it's just my personality. Like I just, I admire and respect the hustle 
I just like things that are new and different and going against the grain. You know, I grew up in a single parent family without a ton of resources and just want to be able to, I don't know, make my own destiny, right? I mean, you guys talk about it on your show all the time, right? You can sit in a cubicle being, you know, waiting around for somebody to like you and promote you. And, you know, you're kind of chained to that cubicle and what the person above you thinks about you versus just getting out there and focusing on pleasing customers instead of some boss. What was holding you back from making the switch sooner? I mean, I think just the way I was raised, my mother's very risk averse. And I think that just was ingrained in me at an early age. I mean, I remember like when I was 27, she reported me kidnapped. Like (laughs) one time I went to London and she just like called all around, like with all the people that I was staying with because she like hadn't heard from me for, for like a day. So yeah, it stems from that. I mean, my, my father passed away when I was young. He was an accountant. That's a very conservative, good, you know, bread and butter profession. And, you know, I guess part of me always wanted to be like him. But I was like, oh, my God, this is such a wrong profession for me for a creative person. But I think I just wanted to follow that path because that's all I knew. How did your friends and family take the news when you told them that you were going to forgo your career, which was pretty impressive, to start doing a strange and small business? They think I'm crazy. I remember meeting with a friend from Citibank, a fellow colleague who had been through the same program as me, so had an MBA. I remember meeting up with him like a year or two ago and I, after I'd left my job and he's like, you left your job? Do you, do you have another one? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no. <laughs> I mean, that's why California is good for me at the end of the day because people around here aren't afraid to take risks and aren't afraid to fail and they just like know they'll figure it out and they'll, they'll work it out in the end. So yeah, everybody thinks I'm crazy, but I don't know. I, I think I've come to terms with it. I used to let it affect me, but now I'm just like, ugh, you know, it's my life, right? It is your life. And on this pod, that's what we're talking about, I guess, at the core. I mean, we do say at the top of the eps, Ian, that we believe one of the best ways to create more personal and financial freedom for you and your family is by growing a lifestyle business. More than I ever have, I feel like opting out. And by opting out, I mean of social norms, of cultural norms, of the things that I'm supposed to be doing. It's just all continuing to feel like a bit more and more silly. I don't know. Is this like holiday party season? Are you Have you been roped into some secret Santa games that you don't want to be a part of or what? It, what? <laughs> I've, I've been roped into a lot this holiday season and that could have something to do with it. But I actually remember feeling this way a lot when we started our first business in 2007. It was like, oh, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with this. Corner office test, look down the hall. You see your boss. I can't do that 20 years from now. We got to opt out of this system and we got to figure out our own way forward. And I don't know. I just want to share that with you. I feel like more than ever, opting out of all these things that you're supposed to be doing as an adult, as a new parent, as a business owner, all these things, it makes sense to at least question all these things. You know, It makes sense to question why you're listening to the podcast. Rebel yell, brother. Rebel yell. And I'll tell you, I've been thinking about this. It doesn't get easier to opt out. It gets harder. Yeah, it does. Because, okay, when we were starting our first business, what were we really opting out of? A bad job? 
That's easy to opt out of. Now, all of a sudden, if you're going to be a parent, are you going to listen to the experts about how to be a parent? Or are you going to do it your own way? Well, you got to do a little bit of both. You got to figure out what you're going to be. Same thing when your business starts to get significant. Look, if you're making a couple thousand bucks a month or whatever off of an affiliate site, eh, you don't have that many decisions to make. But what if all of a sudden you got a bunch of employees and you're paying for their livelihood and their kids' college education? Now, like your business decisions have a whole nother level of pressure and scrutiny, and you might be tempted, maybe I should do things the way I'm supposed to do things here. Right. And same goes for all different areas of life. You get into these uncharted territories, and it's a lot easier to look at somebody with a suit on or a white jacket or someone who has a plaque on their desk that says they're an expert. It's very tempting to say, you know what? Maybe they are. Maybe now is when I should grow up and listen to this person. And I think there's no right or wrong answer. There's no way to answer those questions. But what I found, Ian, is that this is an ongoing process of trying to remember yourself, your values, your integrity, and what you're aiming for when you're in these you know, decision-making processes. Spot on, dude. And I'd say uh, punk rock 2019 for president. More punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> this one is going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash surprises and delights. And hang around after this bumper music for some excruciating examples of Boss Man and I making fools of ourselves. Yes, it's definitely been a all-time year for outtakes here at the TNBA. We're getting rusty. Getting rusty, man. Got a lot of outtakes. And of course, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Happy holidays, everybody. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Daddy. All right, so without further ado, adieu. <laughs> Sorry. I always think of this one David Letterman. He always said, Without further ado, I just loved he would like lean into it. Anyway. Figuring out a way to be authentic. And Harrison, just grab that authenticity thing and just put it in the New Year's Eve episode. There we go. I like it. Authentic. <laughs> it's like a perfect word. Like it's where you would go. I yeah. like it. Authentic. <laughs> Yeah, Francesca. Fran Fr I'll say it another way. By Francesa Angelini. I don't know the right way to say it. DCBKKK. <laughs> all right, all right, I got this. <laughs> That's a different sort of conference. One of the most exciting things for me, people ask me, oh, you know, how did 2007 go? One of the breakthroughs for me, honest. Wait a second. How did 2007 go? Yeah. 17. Oh, sorry. Because both of these off... But because both of these off... Because both of these off... off <laughs> because both of these authors were on the show this year. 
What are you doing, taking a smoke break over there? No, I'm trying to think about... <laughs> I, I can't remember why we... Uh, we started talking about this because of you. Jesus, well, it remind was, me. Then I'll you were talking about looking at Instagram or whatever these things uh, are. Well, you got to give me an alley-oop into that social media shit. Ian, you were the one who, who wrote this down. <laughs> Wearing a seatbelt was like sort of like a macho thing not to do it. Do you remember this? Not really. I think this was are we from different, different parts, parts of the country. country. Yeah. <laughs> I was always, always driving way too fast. All right, you know what? I'm going to move on before I expose myself and my redneck roots. <laughs> Cut that out. All right, let's move on to uh, number four. Or are we on number three? I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember either, but I... I know. did London and Hanoi. So let's move on to number three. All right, yeah. Okay. We're going to move on to the number three I city. I think it's four, dude. I think we're on number three. If not, we'll have to cut out the numbers. How much longer does Mox have, by the way? He's good, man. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Feeding with a vegan diet or what? What's yeah. <laughs> now he's the only meat eater in the house. <laughs> He die. <laughs> Can't eat vegetables. He's a cat. <laughs> I just want to mention this, Dan. If it doesn't go well this year financially, mm-hmm. uh, word on the street is bodybuilders buy breast milk at <laughs> oh, around one fifty to two dollars an ounce. Are you so, serious? Yeah, I got a plan. What? That's yeah. for real. That's for real. There's sites dedicated to it. I can't prove its effectiveness, but what I can tell you. Is the mother of my child eats very clean. I'm horrified. Uh, I'm, I'm vegan. T- I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, out, I'm, out, I'm out of this phone call. This is. I, that's the, what's the, oh, God. See you next week. <laughs>